thank you, Joanna, for joining us. Uh, did you know that there is an extremely and very famous person in the Bible named Joanna? You did, okay. Well, in Luke 8, we read a list of names of Jesus' closest disciples who traveled with Jesus in Galilee, and a woman named Joanna stands out in this little group of uh, people that Luke notes. Uh, Luke notes that Joanna is the wife of Cusa, and uh, Cusa is Herod's household manager, uh, what we would today call the chief of staff. And uh, Cusa had his hands on the lever of power. Cusa was never far from King Herod. And so Joanna's daily life moved quietly around the edges of political power in Galilee. Uh, she would have known King uh, Herod from hundreds of public events. She would have known Herod from private dinners and his closest circles. Uh, she would have known Herod from the stories that Cusa uh, brought home at night. Uh, there are really interesting leaks of private information, insider information uh, that we get about King Herod in the gospel accounts uh, that differ from the public persona of King Herod. Uh, the gospel writers clearly have an eyewitness source close to Herod. Uh, they don't specifically tell us who it was, but Joanna certainly fits the description. The last we saw John the Baptist, he was chained to a wall in prison. Joanna very well may have been the person who, who got information from the cell of John the Baptist to his two disciples. And she may very well have been the eyewitness when this voice in the wilderness was silenced. The insider information we get for today's message is most likely the result of Joanna. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you have a Bible in front of you, uh, to Mark chapter 6. The Gospel of Mark in chapter 6. If you need a Bible, we have them out in the entryway. You are free to have one for yourself. Uh, Mark chapter 6, the 6 is the big number in your Bible. Those are the chapters. And if you need help finding that, uh, ask a friend nearby. They'll probably help you get to Mark chapter 6. Uh, of the four Gospels, Mark is the one who spends the least amount of time on John the Baptist. We've been going through John the Baptist's life here at Good News. And uh, he's the one, uh, the Mark is the one that talks about John the Baptist the least. Uh, Luke, on the other hand, he gives us an incredible amount of detail about John's birth and his life and ministry. And, uh, but Luke barely mentions John's death. But Mark, on the other hand, he spends an inordinate amount of time writing about John's death more than any other part of his entire life or ministry. So for some reason, the death of John the Baptist was very significant in Mark's understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And John's death became a very major focal point for him, and we need to consider that together to, with us uh, this morning. So why in the world does Mark spend so much time on John's death more than anything else about John? Uh, so read with me now in Mark chapter 6. We're going to begin at verse 14. It says, Now King Herod heard this, for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, and because of this, miraculous powers are at work in him. 
So they're talking about Jesus here. Jesus was doing miracles, and Herod is now hearing about it. Uh, others said that uh, he is Elijah. This is that Jesus is Elijah. Others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets from the past. Verse 16, but when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had sent men, arrested John, and bound him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had repeatedly told Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not, because Herod stood in awe of John and protected him, since he knew that John was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard him, he was thoroughly baffled. He was thoroughly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to John. But a suitable day came when Herod gave a banquet on his birthday for his court officials, military commanders, and leaders of Galilee. When his stepdaughter from Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. He swore to her, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? Her mother said, the head of John the baptizer. Immediately she hurried back to the king and made her request. I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter immediately. Although it grieved the king deeply, he did not want to reject her request because of his oath and his guests. So the king sent an executioner at once to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded John in prison. He brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard this, they came and took his body and placed it in a tomb. Herod casts a long shadow over the Gospels. And twice in the narrative, he steps right out of the shadows and right into the main storyline. So who is he? Who is this Herod? Uh, well, there are a lot of politicians named Herod in Jesus' day. Uh, this Herod is named Herod Antipas. Uh, Herod Antipas was born around 20 B.C. He was the son of Herod the Great. Uh, his father was a giant of a man. Herod the Great was a giant man. He was a great politician. Uh, he was, uh, Herod the Great was on the short list of the greatest architectural builders of the world. Uh, his most famous accomplishments were the fortress complex at Messiah if you've ever heard of that, and the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Herod the Great was part of, of building that up and making it great. Uh, Herod the Great also built Caesarea in honor of Caesar Augustus. Herod the Great was married 10 times. He had seven sons by five of those wives, and he named them all Herod, which makes reading the history a bit confusing. Herod Antipas' mother was named Malthus. Uh, he had another brother named Archelaus and, a half, and five other half-brothers. Uh, Herod Antipas and his brother Archelaus spent the time living, uh, growing up, living in Rome, and they got a Roman education. So when Herod the Great died in 4 BC, there was a lot of intrigue as to who would rule the territory 
that we know as uh, uh, Judea and Galilee in the Roman Empire. Uh, Herod the Great had been ruling it, and now that he died, who was going to rule that area? Well, Herod Antipas was only 16 years old when he was thrust onto the scene of the world stage uh, in very tumultuous times, by the way. Uh, in a will contest with his brothers, he was awarded honor of being tetrarch over the regions of Galilee and Perea. Uh, like his father, Herod Antipas was also a great politician. He stayed in power for 43 years, which was a huge feat back then. Uh, his brother, Archelaus, ruled Judea, and he only lasted 10 years before he was deposed. Roman governors came and went. Roman emperors came and went. In a volatile world with political traps and family intrigue and populist discontent all around him and a nation ready to explode, Herod Antipas knew how to navigate the, the, the rapids of cultural conflict. Uh, he kept his balance and he stayed on top for 43 years. Like his father, Herod Antipas was a secular man. He was culturally a Greek person. He didn't look Jewish with long hair and a beard. He had a short haircut and was clean shaven. He had the look and confidence and success established by Alexander the Great. That's still the, the standard in Western world today. Not only was Antipas a great politician, but he was also a great builder just like his father. Like his father, he also built cities. Uh, the first city he built was a little place called Sepphoris, which was four miles north of Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. Major construction was going on to build Sepphoris when Jesus was growing up. Uh, it's very, very likely that Joseph and Jesus walked four miles to and Sepphoris daily to build this place that Herod Antipas wanted built. Uh, aside from that city, uh, Antipas also built Tiberias, which he founded in 18 CE. It was built on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And it became so dominant that by the time the Gospel of John was written, uh, the Sea of Ga Galilee was no longer called the Sea of Galilee. It was called the Sea of Tiberias because of this town that Antipas had built. Uh, Tiberias is also the place where the Sanhedrin moved its headquarters after Rome destroyed Jerusalem. Antipas made Tiberias his own personal capital, and he minted coins there. He was a man who could build cities, he could keep budgets, he drove the economy, he was intelligent, he was well-educated, he was a type A high achiever who kept power for 43 years, and in his jurisdiction, he was the lawman, the lawmaker, and the judge. He was not some drunk who hangs out at strip clubs. He was not a buffoon. The other important figure in today's passage is Herodias. Who is she? Well, four things you need to know about Herodias' life. Uh, first of all, she grew up the life of a princess, and it taught her to expect a certain standard of living. Uh, second, she was very intelligent. Uh, her childhood was marred by the execution of her father, Aristobulus, by her grandfather, Herod the Great. And it taught her to be a survivor and a climber and to be self-reliant. And third, by all historical accounts, she was drop-dead gorgeous. 
For a time, Herod Philip looked to be the guy who was going to be the heir of his father, Herod the Great. Uh, he was the golden boy, Herod Philip. He was being groomed for the throne. In fact, he even began to call himself Herod II, which was not a good idea. And his father, uh, he decided to surround Herod Philip with all the trappings of an heir. Uh, and one thing that every prince needs is a beautiful princess by his side. So Herod the Great arranged that Herod Philip would marry his niece Herodias. It was the golden boy marrying the prom queen. They had a daughter. Her name was Salome, and apparently she got her mother's genes. Herod Philip fell out of favor with his father, Herod the Great, and Herod the Great's final will. And uh, instead of Herod the, Philip getting land and territory, uh, Archelaus received a place called Judea. And Herod Antipas, he ruled an area called Galilee and Perea. And another man, uh, Philip the Tetrarch, ruled another area, and he was married to Cleopatra. But Herod Philip and Herodias, they got nothing. Okay, Herod Antipas also got married, and it appears that it was an entirely an arrangement that was put together by Caesar Augustus, and it was arranged for political purposes. Caesar had Herod Antipas marry his next-door neighbor's daughter. Antipas married the daughter of King Aretas IV, the king of the Nabataeans, and Augustus wanted peace in the empire and uh, was willing to implement intermarriages to gain peaceful alliances in the borders. Uh, this marriage actually provided peace between the Jews and the Arabs for a period of time. It appears that this arrangement went on for quite some time. However, uh, Herod, Antipas, and his wife didn't have any children. It's possible it was a loveless marriage without any romance or intimacy. In 27 AD, Herod Antipas went on a business trip to Rome. He had some politicking to do. That's what he did. His wife did not go with him. And besides that, the Roman emperor who had arranged there the marriage, uh, he was no longer alive. Uh, and as was the case, Herod Antipas had time while in Rome to visit his brother Philip who he hadn't seen in a long time. Also with Philip is Herodias. So what do we have here? We have a man who was 46 years old. He's been married 20 to 30 years. He's a type A guy. He's at the height of his power and authority. He's building cities. He's driving an economy. Everything is really rolling. He seems to find himself stuck in a loveless and pedestrian marriage. He's at the age that many men go through a midlife crisis. And on the other hand, we have a strong-willed, social-climbing woman who is also aged 40, and she's still great-looking. She's finished the hard years of raising kids. Uh, she grew up as a princess. She thought she was marrying the golden boy, but now she realizes she's stuck with this loser. Anybody want to guess what happens next? This is from Josephus. Josephus was a Jew and he was a, a historian for the Romans. He says this, he said, Herod the Tetrarch, this is Herod Antipas, had married the daughter of Aretas and had lived with her a great while. But 
When he was once at Rome, he lodged with Herod, his brother, indeed, but not by the same mother, for this Herod was the son of the high priest Simon's daughter. However, he, that is Herod Antipas, fell in love with Herodias, this last Herod's wife, who was the daughter of Aristobulus, their brother, and the sister of Agrippa the Great. This man ventured to talk to her about a marriage between them. She accepted. Each of them gets a divorce, and then they get married. Herod and Herodias became the power couple of Galilee. All the Galilean nobles, the chief men, all the bastions of political correctness, they all said this was fine and good and right. Everybody, it seemed, except John the Baptist. John was the moral conscience of Israel. John was no reed shaken in the wind. He was no trendy whatsoever. He was not some two-faced, double-talking man. He, was the, he had the same message for the masses that he had for the people who were the elite in society. He was unwavering in his commitment to the truth, uncompromising in his mission to the Lord. He was dedicated to the righteousness of God and the sanctity of marriage. He was saying quite publicly that it was wrong for Herod and Herodias to each leave their spouse, get a divorce, and plot to marry. And deep in his gut, Herod Antipas knew that John was right. In a world of political intrigue, he had no doubt uh, had seen the emptiness of words from family and friends for a long time. Uh, he himself had personally sabotaged one of his brothers' reign in Judea by telling on him to the Roman emperor. He also knew people told him what they thought he wanted to hear. Uh, he knew he was feared and respected and wasn't someone that you should just bring a complaint to. He wanted things to go his way, and he was good at making things happen. John was probably the first person in a long time to call him out on what he knew deep down was sin. The text says that Herod was greatly perplexed by John. John had nothing to gain from denouncing Herod's sinful marriage, but he also had nothing to lose. He had no wife, no family to support, and he had no home to call his home. He didn't even have nice clothes. All he had was a small following, and that following was decreasing in number rapidly. Herod was interested in listening to John, and because Mark says he liked to listen to John. And while he was interested in listening to John, Herod wasn't interested in changing his life. And he wasn't willing to repent. Herod is a man who kept his balance in family rivalry. He kept his balance between the Latin, Greek, and Jewish cultures. He kept his balance with the construction schedules and budgets. He even kept his balance between the political power of Rome and the religious ideologies of the Jews. But he could not balance the righteousness of God's law and the life that he wanted to live. Now, for a while, it looked like it had worked. He kept John in prison so he didn't have to listen to what he didn't want to hear. But then a day came when he had to make a choice. Herod kept John in prison far from his wife, Herodias. She lived in Tiberias while John was in prison in this place called Manchurius. 
But Herodias nursed a grudge and made a plan. They had been married for four years, and John had been preaching for three years. Herod Antipas's 50th or 51st uh, birthday was just around the corner. And so Herodias planned a party at the fort of Mancherius where John just happened to be in prison. All the social and economic and military elite in Herod Antipas's lands were invited. No doubt Cusa and his wife Joanna were there. The party was in full swing. The food, the drink was being consumed. Everybody was having a great time. And then Herodias sends out the adult entertainment. Herodias sends out her daughter Salome to dance. It was such a great dance that Herod loses his balance. Uh, he starts thinking with his testosterone. And guys, I don't care who you are, but your testosterone and mine, we can say some pretty dumb things. And once Herod said something stupid, he couldn't back down. Why not? Mark says, because of his oath and his guess. I suppose that at any age and stage of life, in, in any economic or social group, community pressure, cultural pressure, peer pressure, is a very, very strong force. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's at kids' camp, as teenagers in high school, or with the crowds at a football game, or with kings in ancient times. What the crowd, your crowd, your people, your group, whatever group it is, whatever your group thinks is very important to you. Now, I don't care if it's in your family, if, I don't care if it's your workplace crowd or your neighborhood crowd or maybe even the crowd right here at church. We all work very hard to be respected by other people and we're all very concerned about how we look. Peer pressure and group pressure is as old as the Garden of Eden. Why does group pressure work? It's because nobody likes opposition. I don't like it. You don't like it. Nobody likes opposition. When leaders like Herod Antipas are laden with success over a long period of time, it goes to their heads and it becomes their identity. But failure, that goes to the heart. Herod was a strong, successful, accomplished man. Herod was used to making his own decisions, whether they were political decisions, business decisions, economic decisions. He was used to making his own decisions. But in God's sight, he had failed. He failed to keep his word. He failed to keep his vows to his wife. He failed his half-brother Philip. He failed his ex-father-in-law, the king of the Nebataeans. And he failed God's prophet John simply because of the crowds, the group pressure. He made a decision based not on what he knew was right. The verse says that he was exceedingly sorry. It grieved him deeply to make this choice. But he made a decision based on the opinion of those around him. And that decision has defined him until this very day. Is it any wonder that later on when Herod wants to kill Jesus, Jesus says this. He says, go tell that fox, look, I'm casting out demons and performing healings today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will complete my work. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the next day because it is impossible that a prophet should be killed outside of Jerusalem. 
Foxes are clever. And they're also insignificant. They're base animals and they're murderers. They lack real power and they don't deserve any dignity. Herod was a very weak man. Is it any wonder that on Passover in 33 AD, when Pilate sends Jesus to Herod Antipas, that this is what happens in Luke 23? When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see him perform some miraculous sign. So Herod questioned him at a considerable length. Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and experts in the law were there, vehemently accursing him. Even Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, dressing him in elegant robes, Herod sent him back to Pilate. This man, this weak, insignificant man, the man who mistakenly swears to give his stepdaughter whatever she wants in front of all the important guests and ends up killing the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist, he doesn't get a single word from Jesus. So, why does Mark, spend so much time on John's death more than any other part of John's life. Well, here's the bottom line. The cause of Christ has a price. Mark is trying to encourage his readers to have faith and courage to follow the real king of the Jews at all costs. Right? John understood that the cause of Christ has a price. And he was willing to pay that price because he felt the weight of God's call on his life. You see, people are only willing to pay that price when they see the debased nature of the kings and the leaders of this world and the greatness of King Jesus. And Mark, he exposes the leadership of his day for the debased people that they were. Those politicians were clearly lacking in the integrity department in his day. Just like today. There's a leadership crisis. Herod was lacking. Pilate was lacking. Caesar was lacking. Local, state, and federal governments are lacking. Legislatures and judicial courts are lacking. Every government on earth is lacking because they're all weighed down by the pressure of the masses. They're biased towards self-interest. Uh, they're morally bankrupt. They have too much to lose. They don't really fear God. On the other hand... John had nothing to lose. His whole life was lived for God's purposes. He didn't waver in his commitment to the truth. He didn't waver in his commitment to living righteously. He didn't change his message. He didn't play politics because he didn't fear politicians. He didn't fear the government. He didn't fear for his life. He knew the cause of Christ has a price. Look, Jesus says that if you are a Christian, you and you're in the kingdom, you're a citizen of the kingdom, and if you're the least, if you're the one who ranks the least in the citizen in, and among the citizens of the kingdom of God, you are greater than John the Baptist. And if John died, don't you think we might have to as well? If you want to follow Jesus, you have to count the cost up front. If you want to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, you got to know you might be called upon to lay down your life. 
citizens of the kingdom of God, ambassadors, diplomats of King Jesus and his kingdom are going to have to live and operate and believe in a world that at times is going to be hostile to their faith and way of life. Persecution is normal. It's been normal for 2,000 years. It was normal even before Jesus died on the cross for our sins. John may have lost his head, but he never lost his conscience. He never lost his faith in Jesus as the Christ, and neither should we. Not only did John prepare the people and identify the Messiah, and he also prefigures the coming suffering and death of the Messiah, and he prefigures this coming suffering and death of all those who follow Jesus as well. According to Mark, it's not the message of John, but the death of John that most closely discloses John's significance for us as believers today. We are to be followers of Jesus, even to the point of death. When all the prayer pressure is on, when everyone in your group thinks differently, when you're being pressured to give up on Jesus who never gave up on you, will you remember the cause of Christ has a price? Of all the characters in the Gospels, I think Herod was the, both the most interested and the least interested in listening to Jesus. And that's the world that you and I live in today. Jesus Christ Superstar uh, was a, a theatrical release and movie, and it has a song called Herod's Song. Some of you may know it. It's a real catchy song, and it starts out with these words sung by Herod. Jesus, I'm overjoyed to meet you face to face. You've been getting quite a name all around the place. Healing cripples, ooh. Raising people from the dead, ah. And now I understand you're God. At least that's what you've said. And when you watch these theatrical performances of Herod's song, the cast usually comes out and encourages the audience to join in, and Herod plays directly to the audience. The dancers, they all get arrogant and encourage the audience to clap and sing along, and they do. And the audience howls and laughs and cheers, and they shout and they clap, and the whole theater turns into what it must have been like on the day Herod finally met Jesus. And as I've watched some of the different uh, versions of this song performed on YouTube this week, I was struck by how fast and how easy the whole crowd can be turned into mocking Christ. That's the world that you and I live in today. In our society, the gospel of Jesus Christ is met with contempt and disregard and dismissive cynicism, just like Herod treated Jesus. In one way, John's death is a great way to test to see if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ's true gospel. If you're here and you hear the details of, of Jesus or John's death and, and you shout and you clap and you laugh and have a good time mocking it in your heart and you laugh with the comedians making fun of Jesus and Christians, then maybe you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. But if on the other hand, you admire John's tenacity to keep delivering the truth and people nurse a grudge against you for calling out their sin and you expect to be treated the way John was and you're sad that he died and angry that he did nothing wrong and you're emboldened to die for Jesus, then that would be a good indication that maybe you are a follower of Jesus. 
Don't for a minute kid yourself that it'll be easy to follow Jesus. It's not. The cause of Christ has a price. Let me close with this illustration. A number of years ago, there was a pastor in Zimbabwe who was beheaded, like John the Baptist, because he had an unwavering commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was being coerced by his tribe or some other outside group to renounce his faith. In the night before he died, he wrote this letter to himself, and it was found by missionaries thereafter. He wrote, I'm a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of his, and I won't look up, I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm done and finished with with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, mundane talking, cheap living, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right or first or tops or recognized or praised or rewarded. I live by faith, lean on his presence, by walk by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by Holy Spirit power. My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road may be narrow. My way rough. My companions few. But my God is reliable and my mission is clear. I will not be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice or hesitate in the presence of the adversary. I will not negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, or let up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must give until I drop, preach until all know, and work until he comes. And when he does come for his own, he'll have no problems recognizing me. My colors will be clear. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I want to thank you for the life of John the Baptist that we've been able to study over these last several weeks. As we begin to read the rest of the New Testament, and we kind of know already what's going to happen because of what happened to John is going to happen to Jesus when we read the Gospels. And we know, Lord, that the cause of Christ has a price. But it's so worth it, Lord. The benefits of forgiveness, the benefits of eternal life, the benefits of getting into your kingdom with you as our king, they're so worth it. Lord, we live in a hostile world, and many of our brothers and sisters live in a far more intense time of persecution. And we pray for them. I pray for us as we go through any hostility or peer pressure or group pressure, Lord. I pray that we would understand the cause of Christ has a price, and that we would remain faithful like John, even unto the point of death if we are called upon. I pray that you would keep us motivated to following after you hard, regardless of our circumstances, Lord Jesus. I pray that if there's anybody here who's exploring 
Christianity. And maybe they've been scared. They, they know now that it, it requires all of them. It can't just be part of them. You want them all, Lord. I pray that they would not make the mistake that Herod did. They may be very interested, but they might not want to change parts of their life. And I pray that you would help them to see the beauty of who you are, Lord Jesus, and what you've done for them and how you're not asking us to do anything you haven't done already. I pray that people would trust in you regardless of the cause uh, and the price that it cause, the cause has. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.